If you're looking for the epitome of a brown noser in popular culture, look no farther than Smithers in The Simpsons. Smithers is the obsequious assistant to Mr. Burns, and their relationships are running gag. Ladies and gentlemen, behold your new god, Mr. Burns. Ahoy, hoy, lowly mortals. In addition to working for me, you may now praise me as your almighty. Amen, sir. Sarah McConnell, and today on With Good Reason, we look at the human history of sucking up, and later in the show, perhaps the opposite of sucking up, practicing mindfulness in the office. But first, while we all have disdain for brown nosers, we rarely examine the practice closely. But our first guests today have researched it from the earliest instances of sycophancy in classical literature to modern politics. They say we just might be living in a golden age of flattery. Mark Parker is a professor of English at James Madison University, and Deborah Parker is a professor of Italian at the University of Virginia. They're the married co-authors of the book Sucking Up, A Brief Consideration of Sycophancy. The, the first sort of a, a mention of the word sycophant is in a play by a Greek dramatist. It's a play called Wealth, and sycophant is the name of a character who is kind of a, he's not what we would call a flatterer. He's actually a kind of opportunistic ambulance chaser who basically turns people in when he finds people who are breaking the law, and he's very proud of himself. So that's the first use of sycophant. You write in the book about the Greek moralist Plutarch actually wrote an essay. What was it? How to tell the difference between a friend and a flatterer? That's right. He really sees this as a big problem, that how can you tell the difference between the two? And he locates the difference in something that's almost ineffable. It's intention, which you can never know. He suggests, for instance, that one should say different things at different times and see if the toady, see if the flatterer will simply change position and go along and say yes to everything. Do they ever ask us to do things that are better for us, that make us a better person, or do they simply go along with anything that we would want to do in an expedient way? We wanted examples that came from well-known literary works, Shakespeare's most famous plays, Hamlet, Othello, King Lear, Austen's novels, Dickens, Lord of the Rings, or even more popular figures like Smithers from The Simpsons. Let's explore some of those and go back even farther, let's say, to Milton. (laughs) Part of his brilliance is he casts Satan as really the first flatterer. He's a snake. He's licking the dust before Eve's, (laughs) before he Eve as he sees her. He really brilliantly sort of entwines flattery with fraud. I mean, if Satan is about deception, here he is deceiving in a very human way by flattery. Another author who was very important for us was Dante. In the Inferno, there are nine circles of hell, and he places flatterers in the eighth circle. Above them, we have murderers and tyrants. But we might ask, why does Dante place the flatterers in hell? And they're grouped there with other sinners like hypocrites, thieves, sowers of discord, liars. And Dante sees these sins as sins against the community. They destroy the social fabric. And in the case of flattery, it makes open, frank communication impossible. 
we also saw that this research migrated from psychology to the faculty of business and business education. And there it's seen as really a transaction. So you get article after article in these journals telling people when to suck up, how, how to sort of size up their targets, when it's most efficacious, what kinds of sucking up are, are most useful. They all consider it to be something that works, and they suggest that people do it. They've also sanitized it, whereas earlier we had terms like lickspittle, brown noser, toad eater, pretty demeaning terms. In business journals, it's termed IM, impression management. And what aspect of image management do they suggest really works? Opinion conformity, that is being a yes man, almost always works, especially if you're in a lower position. It's always the safest thing to do. The same articles do say that it can get you into trouble in the long run because by being a yes man, you might not be seen as promotable to the higher realms of uh, administration. But it does work, and they suggest that you do it as often as possible. The language they use is rather interesting. It almost seems humorous, but they use phrases like leverage the ingratiation opportunity and to fully exploit it. It's all of this language of facilitation and transaction that they use. There's one about um, selling in retail, and they suggest that even if you overflatter on the first occasion when a customer comes in, time and again, they might come back, forget that you flattered them and they were offended by your flattery and just remember this sort of good feeling at the subliminal level. So flattery works. Even when you catch it the first time, you may forget sort of some of the bad things about it and it might sort of bring that customer in later. That kind of world where flattery is a default position is also treated in uh, Weisberger's The Devil Wears Prada, where the entire world around the editor of Runway Magazine, the tyrannical Miranda Priestly, sucks up to her. And then, of course, her lackey, Andy, is constantly trying to cater to her ridiculous whims to the point at one time she hates herself because she's sucking up to Miranda's children. It's crazy. Your book has just come out at a time when we're seeing this sort of flattery played out on the national stage in the Trump administration. It has been with us in politics long before the Trump administration, but there have been such egregious examples of it. Yes, that's true, because, say, in the Nixon or Johnson administrations, these things took place in the White House or Oval Office, and we found out about these examples in tapes that were released subsequently. But in the Trump administration, it's become extremely public, and that is the biggest difference today. Often sycophancy is hidden, but from something like the June 12th cabinet meeting where every member present after Mike Pence in succession talked about what an honor and privilege it was to serve the president. There have been articles in newspapers pointing out that he requires a flattery folder twice a day, 9.30 and 4.30 every day. And then there are the people in his cabinet who willingly declare their love of the president or echo his messages or enhance his messages on TV. We miss actually someone like Anthony Scaramucci, who in one of his first press conferences said, he, I love the president staring directly into the camera no less than five times. 
The real difference is the use of media here, uh, well, in addition to the shamelessness, perhaps, of the practice that people don't seem to have any kind of moral compunction about it. Kellyanne Conway managed to suck up in three different media on one day. She was given, finally, a post within the White House, and she gave a press release, and then she gave uh, an interview on TV, and then she went on Twitter to express how grateful and honored she was for this promotion. You'd spent a lot of time in the book looking at the portrait of Henry Kissinger, who really wielded this kind of flattery unabashedly. Often, um, flatterers fool themselves. One of the things that's most surprising is flatterers don't know that they're actually doing it. Kissinger may be a good example of that. He's often compared to Machiavelli, but he's really more like Castiglione's ideal courtier in the Book of the Courtier. There, the ideal courtier is supposed to be agreeable and flexible and conversational and to go along with many things that are indifferent. But at a certain moment, they will tell the prince what he needs to know, and this may be unwelcome knowledge. There's a sense in which I think always Kissinger may have been thinking of himself along those lines of waiting for the moment to tell the person what he needed, to be a friend rather than a flatterer. But I think that the record shows that how difficult that is, that it's easy to think that you're doing that, but sooner or later you are giving up a part of yourself that you should never give up, and you're going along with things that you should never go along with. There's a wonderful moment at the end of your book when you include a vignette. It's an exchange between the Cossacks of the Ukraine and the Turkish sultan back in 1676, and the sultan is demanding the Cossacks submit to him. You include their delightfully defiant response. All right, here's what the sultan demands of the Cossacks. I, the sultan, son of Mohammed, brother of the sun and moon, grandson and envoy of God, ruler of all the Tsardoms, Macedonia, Babylon, Jerusalem, great and small Egypt, the unconquerable, the relentless preserver of the grave of Jesus Christ, the trustee of God himself, the hope and strength of the Muslims, the confounder and great defender of the Christians, command you, the Zaporosian Cossacks, to surrender yourselves to me voluntarily without any struggle and not disturb me with your attacks. And if we were all as fortunate as the Zaporosians, we might consider the nuclear response that they in turn give him. You, Sultan, the Turkish Shetan, and the brother and comrade of the damned devil, of the secretary of Lucifer himself, you, the knight of the devil, will kill no one. The devil will hoist you out, and you and your troops will be devoured, unfit for the pigs of Christians. We are not afraid of your troops on land and sea. We will beat them, and you, hostile son of the devil." You are Jerusalem tinker, a Macedonian wheelwright, a Babylonian cook, and an Alexandrian goat slaughterer. From this you know the answer of the Cossacks to your despicableness. Now we finish. <laughs> An amazing response. It sounds like something that Monty Python would have made up. <laughs> I, when you read that, you really think that there may be one Eric Idle or someone behind that. But these were real exchanges? Reputedly so, and there have been paintings of them, even musical pieces. It's gone into this. myth. It may not be quite as real as, it, as one would like, but it's gone into the realm of myth, and it's taken on a life of its own in the culture. So it's the opposite of kowtowing. As much as we would like to simply speak the truth to power 
in the way that the Zaporozhian Cossacks do. Really, the opposite of the flatterer is someone who basically is able to just speak the truth and be polite in a way. I often think of a, a wonderful poem called Talking in Bed uh, by Philip Larkin, who ends the poem. He, he's talking about a couple that has lost the ability to speak the truth to each other, and he wishes they could say words that were true and kind at the same time. But he ends up in the poem saying words that are not untrue and not unkind. And I think that's perhaps a bit sad, but there's a sense in which if we want to uh, combat flatterer, we have to find words that are not untrue and not unkind, which is difficult, but really what's necessary here. Only Mark Parker is a professor of English at James Madison University, and Deborah Parker is a professor of Italian at the University of Virginia. Their book is Sucking Up, A Brief Consideration of Sycophancy. Coming up next, mind your business, really. It may be that when most people quit their job, it's really their boss they're leaving more than the job itself. And a lot of that has to do with whether the boss is really a good listener and pays attention to and respects what the employee has to say. My next guest says the best CEOs work on their mindfulness in the office. Christopher Reyna is a professor of management at Virginia Commonwealth University's School of Business. He's also the founder of Leading Without Ego, which trains business leaders in mindfulness so they can develop skillful listening abilities. For me, it really was dealing with a difficult situation in my private life, in my personal life, in my work life. I had always been motivated to understand in the workplace why people can't have authentic relationships with their leaders, with the folks they work with. And to me, it comes down to this idea that we can't really be who we are at work. And so that was the, the big question I set out to study when, when working on my PhD. And then going through that personal journey myself, dealing with all those difficult emotions, it really hit me that the reason we can't connect with people at work is because we have an ego in place that's seeking to protect us. When leaders are going through stress, they then can't turn to the folks that they're leading and be the best leader. And so it creates relationships that are less than ideal. So when we are experiencing stress, and so many of us do, how can we function at work when we're lying awake nights or um, living with anxiety and fear? It's a difficult question. I, I think a lot of folks show up to work still dealing with whatever they left at home or in their personal life. And that is manifest in the way you greet people at work or the way you make time for people at work or most oftenly don't make time for people at work. So you have advocated that people at the top try to strive for more mindfulness at work. What is mindfulness? And is that something we can hope to achieve? Its basic level of mindfulness is skillful deployment of attention. Can we be more intentional with who and what in successive moments gets our attention? 
for example, in a meeting when, when someone says something that you don't view as the right choice, I think our first inclination is to shut that down or to shut down the conversation or to remember why it didn't work in the past. That mental chatter that you're going through, that's what I would argue is not a skillful deployment of attention because it's taking you precisely away from that present moment. You're not hearing the discussion. You're not being part of it. And in doing so, you've removed yourself completely from that dialogue with folks in the present moment. Just a simple relaxation of, of the shoulders, of settling more softly into the seat, and a conscious decision to listen that's present moment attention, and that is an authentic connection. Now, whether you end up using the idea or not, you've heard it out, you've listened to it, and you understand where the person's coming from. So I urge leaders to really think that through. Are you shoulders up, hands clenched, waiting to jump in to say what you think? Or is there a relaxed state where you're truly engaging with the person across from you? Do you think most of us have shoulders up? Absolutely. And I catch myself constantly throughout the day while driving here, while sitting here uh, talking with you. I think we often find ourselves in that state. And that's the beauty of mindfulness. It's the simple awareness of what our mind and body is doing in a moment. And because of that awareness, we can then change it. Your consulting company that you've created around mindfulness is called Leading Without Ego. What do you accomplish with business leaders? Leading Without Ego seeks to help leaders understand that in all ways, in all times, we show up with ego present. Ego is not a bad thing. It seeks to protect us. But a lack of awareness of the ego being present is problematic. And I'll tell you why. The first one is that we see everything through our own lens. And as leaders, that's when we stop listening. That's when we stop connecting with other people because... In our mind, we've seen it before, we've done it before, we know the right way to do it. Where mindfulness comes in, though, is realizing in our stressed lives every day, we have choices. A bit more mindfulness, a bit more relaxation, a bit more focusing on what we can control, which is our reactions. And when we decrease the stress response, we don't have to simply see people as in our way we can actually connect with them. They're not in the way of getting our tasks done. They're simply getting their tasks done alongside us. And that's a very big fundamental shift, but I spend a lot of time coaching leaders around that idea. How do your words, how do your actions reinforce this idea that to some extent you are the center of the world? And the message that people are picking up is that they're not valued and the leader values him or himself or herself more than the rest. It's a pretty detrimental to the employee's motivation. You've recently written a chapter in a book looking at the subject of mindfulness in the Trump presidency. What do you see there in the Donald Trump presidency? When we see a top leader, whether that's of a nation or of an organization, using language that reinforces self, I think we, we start to see that that's in a sort of um, ego-based operation mode. And Donald Trump himself talks about the fact that no one can negotiate like he can. And in doing so, we talk about type called distributive negotiation in which there's a fixed pie. So I get more, that means you get less. That tends to be the model that's most often espoused by 
Donald Trump in my analysis. It does, by essence, create an us versus them. That's the rich versus the poor, or it's a long racial divide, or it's around straight versus LGBTQ, because one person gets more of the fixed pie and the other group gets the least. Christopher Reyna is a professor in the Department of Management at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Business. He's also the founder of Leading Without Ego. Coming up next, a link between values and productivity in the workplace. We all understand that we bring our personality to our job, and our personality has an influence on our motivation and success. But less well-known is that the values we bring to the workplace can also affect our performance. This is what Laura LeDuc is researching. She's a professor of management at James Madison University and believes in order to be effective, managers need to understand the personality of their workers, but also their values. Yeah, so I think management scholars have kind of gotten this idea that traits are all that really matter. So extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness. They do seem important. Oh, they certainly are. And we know, for example, that um, someone who's more extroverted is going to do better in a job in sales because they're talking all day long and it doesn't tire them out. And uh, we know that individuals who are score higher on openness to experience do better in jobs that are changing rapidly, that they're constantly having to new, learn new things. And is there one trait that's most valued of all in in, across any profession? Yes, absolutely. So conscientiousness, tendency to be responsible, dependable, relates to performance across all jobs. Probably not surprisingly, right? If you're responsible and dependable, that's going to help you um, in the workplace. There's kind of been this approach to values in particular that we don't really need to understand the values of individuals because organizations create cultures and you're supposed to just adhere to the culture of the organization. Except, of course, that not everyone does. Um, not only that, the values of the founders of the organization create the culture. So that's interesting to understand. Um, the other thing that we know is that people who fit better perform better in the workplace. For example, you would expect a nonprofit organization about, you know, environmental issues would want to hire people like that, right? Because they're going to be more passionate about the goals of the organization. They're going to work harder. We know that, for example, people who score higher on universalism values tend to do better in customer service jobs. They think about other people. They put other people's needs first, and so that helps them uh, be successful in those roles. We also know that th those same universalism values um, are beneficial for ethical decision-making. And conversely, power values are bad for ethical decision-making in the workplace. What are power values? Belief that it's important to be in, in charge, to have control over resources, and to have the status that comes with that as well. There's yeah. a status component. To the extent that we can teach our managers and our managers can get better at understanding those characteristics of individuals, that will make them better managers. If I know, for example, uh, I have an employee who really values achievement, they're going to 
be the person I want to put in charge of a project where we're competing with some other group to get it done the fastest. People with who score high on those love competition and they do not want somebody else to beat them in a competition. So that's who I want to have in charge of that project. If someone likes a lot of stimulation and self-direction, um, they need a project that's going to give them a lot of autonomy and freedom to explore and do things in different ways, but maybe not one that has a let's beat the other team to the punch kind of component to it. And again, you think you would ferret these out in exams or in questions and interviews prior to hiring? Yeah, I think that the interview is probably the best way to get to know people's personality. One of the challenges, though, in an applicant setting is that it's pretty easy for me to look at those questions and say, hmm, I should probably say that I'm responsible. (laughs) So... (laughs) They're imperfect, and interviews are imperfect as well. But I think that when, with practice, we get better at assessing whether or not people are giving us a truthful response or not. And it's not going to ever be perfect. One of the findings that I've enjoyed the most is that um, I, uh, I looked at both conscientiousness and achievement values simultaneously. So conscientiousness is a trait, and achievement value is a value. And I looked in particular at students and how they do on exams. And what I found was that they interact. So if you're highly conscientious, you're going to do well on the exam because you think it's important to study. And if you're going to take the class, you're going to put the effort into doing well. But what was very interesting is that the students who had high achievement values, but low conscientiousness, in other words, they're by nature kind of lazy, disorganized, much more go-with-the-flow kind of individuals. But if they had high achievement values, in other words, their parents taught them it was important to do well in school, they had just as high a scores on the exams as the students who were high in conscientiousness. To me, that is vindication for parents everywhere that you actually are having an impact on your kids when you're trying to teach them these things. You know, so so often parents say, gosh, once I saw my children, I realized how different people emerge from the get-go. Do you see that in the classroom, too? Oh, yes. Do you see in your students just how fundamentally different their personalities can be? Oh, yes, absolutely. People's traits just don't change a lot. In contrast, you'll actually see some students' values can change quite a bit while they're in college. You know, they've been taught their values from their parents. They're away from their parents for the first time and exposed to a bunch of different values. And and so you will sometimes see a lot of values change in college. And then, then that it also stabilizes, typically in early adulthood, people's values stabilize. And then they don't change a whole lot after that unless they're exposed to a real big change in circumstance. So, for example, they become parents, and uh, all of a sudden, hedonism values become less important, and benevolence values and um, taking care of their kids become more important. Are you finding that a lot of colleagues and people in the field are now interested in this work you're doing, looking at values in addition to personality traits? So interestingly, when I was working on my dissertation, I really wanted to do incorporate values and um, and also look at traits and look at the two together. And I had to convince my dissertation chair that this was a worthwhile topic and that, in fact, values were not the same as traits. And he was very skeptical. Um, and that was about 10 years ago. And within about the last year or so, he's actually contacted me and said that 
he is starting to do more with values because so he's he's working more with employers and so many employers are interested in this topic of values. But I think we recognize more and more that when our employees have values that are similar to the values of the organization, they're going to be more excited about pursuing the goals of that organization. And so it's going to give an advantage to employers that are doing a good job of, of um, figuring out who to hire based on, on values and values fit, that that's going to benefit them in the, in the competitive marketplace. Laura LaDuke, thank you for sharing your insights with me and with good reason. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Laura LaDuke is a professor of management at James Madison University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, using advanced cardiac imaging to better diagnose conditions before they become serious health issues. UVAHealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends. Smithfieldfoods.com Come to the Virginia Festival of the Book in Charlottesville, March 21st through 25th. Five days, hundreds of authors. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Allison Quance is our senior producer. Elliot Majerzyk is our producer and Kelly Libby is our associate producer. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our intern is Georgiana Reed. For the podcast, go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.